This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, Bibi is back. After five elections in less than four years, Israelis have returned Benjamin Netanyahu, widely known as Bibi, back to power. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel, former and presumed incoming prime minister Bibi Netanyahu has governed the Jewish state for most of the last 25 years. According to Patrick Kingsley of the New York Times, Bibi presided over a rightward drift within Israeli society, the same shift that apparently catapulted him and his right-wing allies to victory on November 1. Bibi's Likud party and the so-called Religious Zionism Alliance garnered about 64 seats, giving them a clear majority in the 120-seat parliament. However, according to Kingsley, Israeli centrists and leftists are concerned that Bibi will empower some of the most extreme elements in his coalition, such as Itamar Ben-Gavir, who, quote, seeks to deport anyone who works against the state of Israel and gives soldiers the freedom to shoot Palestinians, unquote. Israel's Palestinian minority, which comprises one-fifth of Israel's population of nine million, also worries that such far-right positions are code for, quote, the expulsion of large numbers of Palestinians. Bibi Netanyahu, who is still under indictment for bribery and fraud, may also want to evade justice. Some analysts speculate that his far-right allies could help him weaken and overhaul Israel's justice system. To better understand how Bibi and his right-wing political partners may wield their new power and what it means for Israel, the region, and U.S.-Israel ties, we turn to two superb experts. David Makovsky is Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Previously, David served as a senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations at the Department of State and Natan Sachs. He is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program and director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Natan's work focuses on Israeli foreign policy, domestic politics, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and U.S.-Israel relations. And both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. David Makovsky, let me begin with you. Obviously, I want to get your take on this election and the outcome. How do you read the victory for the nationalist far right? What factors led to this outcome? Well, thank you, Carol, for having me. It's always good to be with you on VOA, to be with Natan Sachs as well. I would say the following. If you look numerically, there was not a seismic shift at all. Due to kind of missteps of the center left, a lot of votes were lost that they didn't cross the parliamentary threshold. And they admit they made mistakes. Actually, I think there were more votes for the center left than for the right. But within the right, there was certainly a shift to a harder right. And I would argue that that partly was due to violence. And we've seen this repeatedly in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that whenever there's terrorism, it moves Israelis rightward. And I think the killings that we saw in the spring during Ramadan, the ongoing violence in the northern part of the West Bank in Janine and Nablus, that all contributed to that. But I don't think it would be fair to say that all these people from the center left suddenly shifted rightward. The shift, as I see it, was within the right. And the combination of that shift, along with the procedural missteps to vote for parties that didn't cross the threshold 
you know, that's what tilted the election. So it would be, I think, a mistake to read into it that there was a dramatic change in, in the Israeli electorate. Turning to you, Nathan Sachs, is that how you see it? That it's more of a shift to the right within the right and perhaps procedural missteps from the center left that gave Israel what looks to be one of the most right wing governments in its history? Yes, electorally, it's very clear. The numbers are almost equal, as David said. But we did have major missteps and inefficient allocation of votes on the left that lost them a lot of seats. But I'd say there's two more things going on. One is that this is the fifth election now in this ongoing political crisis that's now over with Netanyahu's victory. And in a sense, it was tied, almost exactly tied every time. And so if you throw the dice enough times, one of them will come out in Netanyahu's favor. And all he needed was one victory to end it, since his camp is very united behind him and the opposition camp is extremely disunited. The second point is that as these successive elections in Israel's rolling political crisis occurred, the soft right shed off from Netanyahu's camp. And what was left was the hard right and especially the religious and right alliance. This is the first time the coalition will be majority religious parties and we see a very religious basis for this coalition. Moreover, Netanyahu himself is a very different politician than he was a decade ago. Netanyahu now orchestrated the entrance of the far right and then with it the extreme far right into the parliament together and made sure that he didn't lose any votes even on the most far extreme fringes of the right. As a result, we have this right-wing alliance to Netanyahu's right that is very extreme, that will have quite a bit of power in the new coalition, a surprising amount of power. And so even though the results on the macro level are not different, the end result will indeed be very different than it was in the past. Well, thank you for those explanations, gentlemen. Back to you, David Makovsky, to get a sense of what we're looking at here. After the election, a lot of analysts were wringing their hands saying, you know, perhaps Bibi might go for more of a unity government, that the center left, Yair Lapid, the former prime minister, somehow these people could get together and avert exactly what you're describing. Is that even remotely possible at this point? It doesn't seem likely. There's always the tell, as I would call it. Like, if you really wanted that kind of government and you said, hey, I want to broaden it, you would leave open, let's say, to be the defense minister, which Gantz is now, or the foreign minister that Lapid has been. He's not doing that. This is where it gets even more uh, tragic, I think, is that his court case is becoming the great divider in this coalition, where the center-left is saying, and by the way, elements of the right, too, there are more right-wing seats. They're just anti-Netanyahu because they feel that he wants to change the rules of the game that have an impact on the democratic norms of the society. So he wants to use this coalition to insulate himself from prosecution. He doesn't talk about that. The people around him, though, are very open about that. And what that does is it automatically kind of disqualifies half of the Knesset, half of the Israeli parliament, anyone on the center left or those people on the right. Once that becomes the great filter, so to speak, to say, well, one of the first moves is to adopt what they call the French law that says that no politician can be prosecuted until after he leaves politics. What it means is that the center left 
can't really join. And by the way, once the law passes, some people said, oh yeah, well, that's a twofer, you know, step one, he'll pass that law, then he can get rid of the, the more extreme people. But by then he will have validated the concerns of the center left that he's capable of changing the rules of the game. And I think it makes it harder, not easier for them to join. Got it. Well, in that regard, we need to look in terms of the exact agenda of this alliance. I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of the major players, power brokers that give concern to many people, not just the center left and the Palestinians, but even around the world, the United States, Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bezalel Smotrich. Talk about who these gentlemen are, what they want, what they're getting in this new coalition. Look, together, those two politicians, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, have 14 out of the 64 seats. Netanyahu said, I don't want to pass a law about my own personal situation. I'm willing to get rid of these guys. He actually has an option with Gantz, the defense minister, but because he refuses to do that, that's why you're in the situation of a kind of a straitjacket where this is what's going forward. These two people that you mentioned are particularly of deep concern. Smotrich is, I would say, a very deep ideologue. As Natan said correctly, basically this whole party that was created with him and Ben Gvir was actually something created by Netanyahu himself, who thought there were hard right voters who would not vote for a softer right Likud. And so Netanyahu created this Frankenstein, so to speak, and now he has to deal with it. But that Frankenstein in the last election, led by Smotrich, really was the one who blocked Mansour Abbas and the Arab party from joining Netanyahu. Netanyahu wanted this Arab party. He would have been the prime minister the last round. Smotrich said it's better not to be in power than to have an Arab party in. So I think that's part of it. And now he's going to have control either through him or another of his associates in the defense ministry over the settlement outpost enterprise over some of the most sensitive elements. And also on religious issues, he would like to pass certain legislation that would be frankly at odds with the American liberal norms and the American Jewish community. Itamar Ben-Gvir, I think, is more of a showman, more of a provocateur, someone who has never met a TV camera he doesn't watch. And he dives into, you know, melees with Arabs. He is called himself a disciple of Mayor Kahana, who was for ethnic cleansing. Now, he has said, I'm not there. I've changed my mind. I'm not where Kahana was. But he wants to reserve the right to define who is disloyal to the state. He said, you throw a rock, you're out. So he would define who that person is. And by being the police minister, although they're giving it different titles, national security minister, but to be in charge of the police, that is one of the most sensitive elements in Israeli society because they have authority over the Temple Mount and the Haram al-Sharif. And that is something that is perhaps one of the most flammable pieces of space in the entire Middle East, if not the world. And he is someone who has been provocative in the past. The status quo there is Jews visit there and Muslims pray there. That's something Netanyahu has said in his own voice in public. Is he going to reaffirm the status quo? So those are two key figures with two key portfolios that are of special concern. Now, just to be fair, on the other side, Netanyahu is hoping that given his experience, given his relationships with the other ultra-Orthodox parties that we've not mentioned here, that ultimately he's going to be able to outmaneuver them. So door number one, Netanyahu prevails, and he's more risk averse. He's never sent ground forces really into combat. One of the few Israeli prime ministers since 1967. 
or door number two is the junior coalition members that hold the balance of power who have specific areas of concern that they hold the balance of power. At this point, we don't know who will emerge, the risk-averse Netanyahu or the more extremist junior members that I think have a very clear agenda. Nathan Sachs, please hold your thoughts on that very topic because we just need to go to a quick break. You are listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are David Makovsky, he's Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, from whom you just heard, and Nathan Sachs. He's Director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. We're discussing the domestic and international implications of the return of Bibi Netanyahu as Prime Minister of Israel with a coalition of some of the most far-right politicians in Israel's history. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also download the show on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Zach Waku from Abuja, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So, Nathan, back to you to weigh in on these particular figures, Itamar Ben-Gavir, Smotrich, who are going to be holding very key portfolios if they get their way and could really change the direction of the government, perhaps put in peril U.S.-Israel relations and certainly give cause for very deep concern by Palestinians on the West Bank and Arab-Israeli population, given their very hard-line stances, particularly Ben-Gavir has shown anti-Arab sentiment. He was even charged with terrorism previously, and as David Makovsky said, he is a disciple of the late extremist Rabbi Meir Kahani. Your take. Thank you, Carol. David, I think, pointed out very well that there are two elements here. One is of continuity. Netanyahu will be the prime minister, and he's a known commodity. He's not liked by everyone, not by the Biden administration, but he's certainly not unstable and has a long track record of that. But these two individuals, and with them, their parties, will have a lot of sway in this government. And we already know the portfolios that they will get. But Sarah Smotich will be minister of finance, which is, of course, one of the most important portfolios. And as David said, will also have a minister in the defense ministry, not the defense minister himself, in charge of settlements. Itamal Benvil will be the new minister for national security, which is an invented name, a new name, but he'll be in charge of police, as David said, in charge of Jerusalem. This is a point where I think it's very important that everyone who cares about liberal values or about Israel, frankly, be very unequivocal. These two men are far beyond the pale. It's not close. They're not on the line. They are far beyond the pale. Meir Kahana was not just extremist. He was openly racist. He was compared by the Israeli right wing, by the Likud government and Netanyahu's predecessor, Itzhak Shamil. Itzhak Shamil would never sit in the plenary when Kahana spoke. He would leave. He would not give him the honor of listening to him even. And now his successor, Netanyahu, has orchestrated Benvir coming in. Now, Benvir is not Kahana precisely, but he does call him his rabbi and considers himself a disciple. And he's praised mass murders like Baruch Goldstein. This is truly, it's not just far right. It's not just hawkish on the Palestinian issue. It's not just pro-settlements or other things that we've seen for many decades. This is very different. And so on the symbolic level, I think it's very important we be unequivocal. And in that sense, we are looking at an interesting time, to say the least, in U.S.-Israel relations. The U.S. has many other interests besides this and also has a very busy docket. But there are many in the United States, including many in the pro-Israel community, who are extremely concerned about this development. 
But I'd say a second point, which is very important. It's not just symbolic. These individuals will have real power now, and Netanyahu has given them more power than I thought he would, to be honest. The West Bank is already simmering, as David said. The Palestinian Authority is in deep crisis of legitimacy. Even without this government, even had Yair Lapid continued to be prime minister, there would have been a chance of a breakdown of authority in the West Bank and a return of violence. Now, with someone like Benvir, who has been a pyromaniac in a lot of the Arab-Israeli clashes in the past couple of years, he would go to the streets himself to incite violence. He will now be in charge of the police with added authority this time. And he will also have some authority even in other areas that were not traditionally part of the police, anything to do with Arab-Israeli relations and with law and order. As David said, he is someone who loves the camera and perhaps will decide that he does not want war, but it will not necessarily be up to him. Things are so close to violence. Someone like him, so irresponsible, so extreme, is really playing with fire. His partner, Bitsalis Smotlich, is the smarter one and the one with a lot of experience in government and parliamentary procedures. He is not someone who's just out for the headline. He really knows how to change things, often for the worse. And as finance minister, he will have enormous sway over everything the government does. And in that sense, they will be, especially around settlements, which he cares about deeply. He himself is not a Kahanist, but he is very extreme. He's much, much more conservative than his old partner, say, Naftali Bennett, conservative in a religious sense, but also conservative in terms of changing Israel's position, especially on settlements on the Palestinian issue. On gay rights, LGBTQ rights in general, there is also a dramatic shift. There, I expect Netanyahu to push back more because his own party is quite opposed to changing on these things, but the symbolism is quite strong. So I hate to sound alarmist. It's not my style. It's not my institution's style, but this is a moment of real alarm. These people are far, far beyond the pale. And Benville, the symbolism of him is really a watershed moment. So back to you, David Makovsky, Betalel Smotrich, and of course, Ben Gavir, as you both said, these are going to be key players. Now, let's look at the impact on U.S.-Israel relations. You know, how is this going to change the relationship with the United States, just as you both have alluded, and particularly Nathan, that this is going to heighten tensions, even within the U.S. Jewish community, the pro-Israel community? This is very concerning, this rightward trend. I would say on the good side, to be fair, Biden and Netanyahu have known each other for decades, and they both kind of share a visceral sense that you solve problems behind closed doors. And by the way, the Iran issue, which we've not discussed, I think in a certain way has gotten easier because the fact that they are selling drones to Russia and the human rights protests of the women inside Iran has meant that the whole idea of a nuclear deal that was the chief source of tension between Netanyahu and the U.S. in the past is simmered down a bit. And they're not on opposite sides of the divide. And also, Netanyahu has had a relationship with Putin. He's not going to cut closer to a Putin that is working with an armed Iran and producing Iranian drones there. So I think that that part of the relationship is actually going to get easier. And I just want to say that looking at the overall picture. In my view, the next step needs to be a real sit down at Camp David or wherever it is between these two leaders, where they put it all out on the table and they go through issue by issue, whether it's outpost settlements, whether it's the Temple Mount, all the things that Natan and I have just discussed, and we're in full agreement here. 
basically lay it out between the two of them and to say, okay, where is this going? Now we understand, BB, you're not in full charge here, but we need to know where your government is going on these things. Because if it's going to go in a negative way, we might go for red lines. We want a commitment, no change on the status quo on the Temple Mount, for example. We might go easier on a few other points, but we need on certain core issues to get a real sense or else this is going to spill out in the public in a very negative way. I think the U.S. acted very deftly with a lot of success in maneuvering so Smutrich wouldn't be the defense minister. Now, here's the secret sauce in a certain way that could be a good thing. And that is that Netanyahu is probably in agreement with Biden on some of these points. And therefore, there might be a kind of, I don't know, good cop, bad cop, if you want to call it that, but situation where Netanyahu wants the U.S. to put out a red line on a given issue, because that gives him ammo in terms of his own government back home to push back on some of his partners. David, let me ask you one more question, and that has to do with reaction in the Palestinian community and, of course, among some of the new Abraham Accord partners, and to what extent these two extremists that will be most likely included in the cabinet could actually create what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, more terrorism, more frustration that would then bring more crackdown and then pretty much eliminate the two-state solution. And maybe we're looking at a binational state, which I don't think is in Bibi's interest or the state of Israel or for the diaspora. Look, there's no doubt that violence is going to create a, a downward spiral because it will then be used by people on the hard right to say, see, you need more force. And that will also evoke a retaliation. That is my big fear, that that's where this goes. It hardens the extreme. It doesn't avert people from it. And that's what I was saying at the start, which is that violence moves Israel rightward. So you're touching on something I'm very concerned about. I just came back from the Persian Gulf. I raised some of these issues there. On one hand, the Palestinian issue is remote, although I must say that Abdullah bin Zayed, the foreign minister of the UAE, was in Israel in September. And I know this is correct, that he met with Netanyahu and said, listen, if you become prime minister and you bring in Ben Gvir, that's going to be a problem for us. Even if, let's say, the Emiratis and the Palestinians are estranged on nationalism and the Emiratis don't follow all the nuances, this is a religious shrine. It's holy to everybody. And if there is instability there, if there's explosions around there, that is going to ripple, not just in the Middle East, it'll ripple in the Muslim world in a big way. The issue will be on people's television screens. Once it takes on a religious connotation, I don't think these countries are going to be able to look the other way. That's why I'm so focused on Ben Veer as the police minister or whatever he calls a national security minister, because I see this as, you know, something that could be very explosive. I, I really hope I'm wrong. Netanyahu knows this. We're hearing rumors that he somehow wants to bring this under the prime minister's office. So I don't know how you take away the police of the Temple Mount and say, no, it's not under the police minister, it's under the prime minister. I don't know how that's going to work. Turning back to you, Nathan, to close out the show, I want to ask you the last two questions as well, particularly on U.S.-Israel relations, how this new government will complicate things in your view or not. It's a great question. On the face of it, there's sort of three different factors going on and they pull in different directions. First, just as David said, 
Biden knows Netanyahu very well. They are not best friends, but they actually their relationship is much better than Obama's and Netanyahu's. And Biden is not interested at all in confrontation with Israel. He's shown that in the past two years for many reasons, partly his own history and preferences, and partly because he has a lot else on his agenda. He has a global agenda in foreign policy and national security regarding China, regarding Russia. There's, of course, an ongoing war in the Ukraine, energy crisis, etc., etc. There are so many different things, even in the Middle East, that would come before this, that Biden is just not looking for more problems. The catch here is that, of course, especially regarding the potential for violence, if you neglect this, you may find yourself much deeper enmeshed in something you don't want to be enmeshed in. And so there's a real dilemma there for the Biden administration. How much do they pivot from their standing decision, which was to manage the relations? They have tried to spend less time than in the past and have succeeded so far. The second point, of course, is Netanyahu's relationship. And Netanyahu himself, he is the moderate one in this new coalition, and he's the one certainly with more experience and preference for stability. The third point, of course, is that there's also an issue of values and of U.S. relations with the Palestinians. This new government is not even talking the talk, let alone walking the walk. Benville and Smotrich, but also many of their partners, including inside the Likud, are vehemently opposed to the very idea of a two-state solution. They do not envision anything that would include Palestinian suffrage or Palestinian independence. And in that sense, they offer no horizon. Now, one could argue that Palestinians have not seen much political horizon for quite a while, and that's true. But here's a government that senior members of the government don't even share nominally the same goals as the Biden administration. So where does the Biden administration end up on this? I don't know. My recommendation is that they cannot neglect it much longer. There are issues here that could blow up. They may not. We never know. But the chance of blowing up is much higher than in the past. And therefore, more energy spent now, despite the cost of spending that energy, is worth it probably in the long term. For now, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, David Makovsky, Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Nathan Sachs, Director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Do join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. Music